All right, so today's lecture is going to be different, and I know that that's not helpful to you because at this point you have had one lecture, it was about the syllabus, and it was already different insofar as, you know, it was the first lecture. Um, but most of the time when I do these lectures, I'm going to be confronting and, and analyzing and sort of like evaluating, dissecting the various philosophical works we're, we're going to be talking about later on in the class. So next lecture is just going to be me talking about Plato for an hour. And then the next lecture will be me talking about Plato for an hour. And the lecture after that will be me talking about the Tao Te Ching for an hour. And then me talking about Exodus for an hour. All great. Um, but on this lecture, I want to kind of assume that you understand the videos that you watched, that the Wisecrack video made sense, that the wireless philosophy videos were sufficiently, you know, open to your understanding, like, you get it. I'm going to assume that because we have a lot of other work to do, um, and yet it's a lot of disparate work. Um, a lot of my students come to my class and don't know how to do logic. Um, so this is me attempting to somehow cram into an hour and 15 minutes an entire intro to logic course, which is absurd and impossible, and we're going to try and do it anyway. Um, because I find that a lot of my students really don't understand how logic works. Um, and on some level, like, you can't fix that. Like, I've sat in logic classes, I've watched students beat their head against this stuff, and frequently they come out with no better idea how it works than they did when they went into it. Um, suffice it to say that what I'm going to expect you to do in this class is diametrically different from any class that you have sat in where you could memorize your way to success. Um, like, you can't just times tables the solutions to philosophy. You have to be able to understand, analyze, think critically, and ultimately see the connections between the various things that we're talking about, the way that the arguments progress, um, in order to be able to, you know, write a philosophy paper or argue against somebody intelligently. Um, think your geometry class like back i hope that they still do this in geometry classes but back when you were expected to write proofs um like why are alternate interior angles congruent why is this triangle you know like a obtuse or isosceles or whatever um how, what exactly is the measure of this angle given the measure of this other angle on the completely different opposite side of the graph? That's the sort of logic that we're going to be doing in here. Largely because it's the sort of logic that honestly inspired philosophy in the first place. Um, Euclid was actually the inspiration for a lot of Platonic philosophy. Um, a lot of philosophers back in ancient Greece were looking at Euclid's postulates and Euclid's theorems and Euclid's proofs and saying, damn, that's really smart and that makes me feel good and I totally want to apply this same kind of approach to knowledge to more important things than just triangles drawn in the dust. What if we talk about justice in the same way? What if we talk about goodness in the same way? What if we talk about God in the same way? On some level, philosophy is just mathematical reasoning applied to real world problems, which is probably bad news if you hated your geometry class. 
Um, so sorry folks, but those of you who like your algebra more than your geometry may very well find yourselves struggling in here more than the students who really adapted to that proof writing business um, many, many moons ago. Um, and the problem here again is it's not something I can teach in an hour. Like it just isn't. Um, if you in fact are trying to become more logical to understand how logic works, to sort of practice it more often um, in your day-to-day -day life, I can't recommend that enough. It is eminently practical. Um, not only will it help you if you're going into one of the scientific careers, like if you want to become an engineer or a researcher or something, but generally it is just so eminently useful. Like virtually every career profits from having a logical, you know, approach to it. Um, so consider the first tool in your tool belt to be me making a couple of recommendations as far as how to make yourself think more logically. Um, First, obviously, if you can take a logic class, do it. Like, I don't think Sussex County Community College offers one, but I know that many of you are off transferring to other four-year schools once you are done here. Um, if you get the chance to take a logic course, do it. Like, it'll make your life way easier. You'll be able to blow away standardized tests more, much more effectively. Um, but you do actually have to work at it. Like, you have to change the way that you think in order to get to that point. Um, and I don't want to make this sound elitist or anything. Like, as far as I can tell, everyone can, is fully capable of doing logic, even though many students do, in fact, struggle with it for reasons that seem fairly inexplicable. So the second thing that I would suggest is, weirdly, go play some video games. Um, and not just any video games. Like, you will not become more logical by playing more Call of Duty, or if you are, then that's incidental, I suspect. Um, but there are a ton of games out there that do, in fact, test logical ability and logical reasoning. Um, perhaps the most famous and the easiest to track down is friggin' Minesweeper. Go play some goddamn Minesweeper. Um, look up how Minesweeper works. Minesweeper is an incredibly logical game. It constantly flexes those logical muscles, so to speak. Um, it is sort of perfect in the sense that, like... Every single move that you make can, if all goes well, be like boiled down to a purely rational um, experience. Um, there are a lot of Minesweeper clones and Minesweeper likes out there nowadays. Um, if you have Steam, you should absolutely track down the Hexels games. They're each like two or three dollars. They are even more logical than Minesweeper um, and require an even more logical approach than Minesweeper does. There's a free-to-play one that I just found literally last night called Hexseed, um, which I highly recommend. If you can find it on your phone or something, even better, like play it while you're sitting on the toilet. Um, just that's good practice. Like it, it will keep that logical part of your mind functioning and sharp. Um, but you can also find it in other video games as well. Um, not so much the twitching action oriented ones, um, but a lot of the sort of thinky puzzly ones. So Slay the Spire is very logical as is Monster Train and most of the sort of games that have spun off from it. Um, there are a ton of interesting puzzle games out there, like Baba is You, which is frankly amazing. Um, I cannot recommend them enough. Um, so if you are struggling to see the connections between thoughts in this class, go play some video games as practice. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. 
Um, you can also do Sudoku. Sudoku is great at figuring out logic. It does not require nearly as much math as it would seem on the outside. Um, you will also find there are these great things called nonograms, um, Japanese crossword puzzles. You can find them free to play online. Just search up nonograms and you will probably track some down. Um, mostly they just involve like painting pretty pictures with little colored dots. Um, but it is all hyper logical. It is all, you know, as much as it looks like it's a bunch of numbers and colors, it is actually all about understanding, you know, where in the process, like these logical connections are made. How do you eliminate the possibilities um, and reduce it to the point that this has to be there, that has to go there, this cannot belong there. Um, it's fascinating stuff, um, and it is really good practice, and it will help you to become more logical, more incisive. Um, the second tool that I want to offer you is framework. Um, a lot of our philosophy is going to tr I'm going to try and contextualize it fairly desperately. Um, the fact of the matter is that people thought differently, asked different questions, and struggled with different issues as history and time went on. Um, and as a result, philosophy has developed both on the one hand, um, sort of different periods, like there are different moments uh, in history where different kinds of philosophy was practiced. Um, but the other thing is philosophy itself has a wide variety of sort of sub-disciplines, um, branches of philosophy, if you will. Um, so without any further ado and get out your notebooks, here are the four historical periods and the five branches of philosophy. Virtually all of the philosophical work we're going to do falls into one of these one of each of these categories and shocker you may have to know them for the final exam depending on which exam i am giving you um so the four historical periods of philosophy are the ancient period which runs from roughly let's say f like as far in the past as possible to about 500 a.d or c.e um so we can roughly say like 1000 BCE to 500 CE or AD. Um, we will be running through these periods chronologically in this class. So the first philosopher, Plato, which we will start next week, is one of the quintessential ancient philosophers, arguably the greatest ancient philosopher in Western philosophy. Um, he wrote in ancient Greece, which is sort of the center of Western philosophy at that point. But ancient philosophy can also extend to other cultures and other traditions as well. Like we will spend some time reading the Tao Te Ching, which is one of the paradigmatic texts of Chinese philosophy, Eastern philosophy, also an ancient text. Um, the sort of cutoff there, like the reason why I say 500 CE or AD, um, is because that's when like Christianity was riding high, but the Roman Empire was starting to fall apart. Um, like Rome was sacked right around that time. Um, and as a result, like philosophy had sort of metamorphosed from being primarily secular to being primarily religious. Um, and that's one of the key distinctions between 
uh, ancient and medieval philosophy. But the characteristics that you'll find in ancient philosophy is there is a very keen interest in metaphysics on the one hand and ethics on the other. We will talk about those branches momentarily. Um, the primary goals of ancient philosophy were to understand how the world worked. How do the gods work? Um, so Plato frequently questions the established mythological traditions of the time, sort of like challenging what Homer and Hesiod had written as these sort of primary mythological creators, um, and instead is insisted that the world must operate according to reason, much like Euclid and all of his triangles did. Um, so therefore the gods had to be good because the gods are better than us um, and if the gods were good then the world had to be good as well and he basically made this elaborate logical argument for how you know the misery and un unhappiness in the world basically stems for, from our fallibility our weakness our ignorance in most cases um, and this is very much where a lot of philosophers will end up as far as their their at least a lot of ancient philosophers end up like even Lao Tzu off in China is asking and answering the same questions what is God like how does piety work um, how do you, how should one live one's life um, these are sort of the fundamental questions that people are asking now medieval philosophy changes direction a little bit um, and medieval philosophy I roughly say runs from 500 CE to about 1500 CE it ends at about the time of the Renaissance. Um, and we'll get into that more when we get to that point in our curriculum. Um, we will be reading two medieval philosophers, Anselm and Aquinas in this class. Both are huge, important luminaries of their various moments in philosophical history. Aquinas especially is probably the most important and greatest of the medieval philosophers with the possible exception of St. Augustine who we're gonna miss on this one. Sorry folks, no confessions for you. Um, but the key to medieval philosophy is that it is primarily grounded in religion. Um, and in the West, that typically means Christianity, but elsewhere it means other things. In fact, some of the greatest medieval philosophers were, shocker, Islamic philosophers. Um, Islam was actually riding real high at this point in history. Um, the Islamic world was enjoying a golden age while the West and the Catholic Church and Christianity were enjoying the Dark Ages. Um, so keep that in mind, like as much as our sort of Western ethnocentrism tends to think that like Western culture is the best, there was definitely a point where we were banging rocks together and they were putting together telescopes. Um, so mind that, you know, it is not always the way that your history books frequently portray things. Um, medieval philosophy, therefore, is about sort of reconciling the truths of the great Western religious texts, the Bible, the Old Testament in the case of Jewish philosophy, and the Quran in the case of Islamic philosophy, with the teachings of Plato and Aristotle, the great ancient secular philosophers. Um, it was an attempt to sort of make science and religion fit together, um, which, if that sounds weird to you, keep in mind that at this point science is what philosophy has been saying there are no biologists um, in the ancient or medieval periods short of what philosophers are doing biology um, 
At this point, it is called, at best, natural philosophy, and will continue to be called natural philosophy until, like, the 19th century. Um, science as a separate discipline from philosophy is a really relatively new concept, like 150 years old at most. Um, even Sir or Isaac Newton, much later on in the 17th century, considered himself to be doing natural philosophy. Um, so medieval philosophy doesn't see a problem with trying to fit science and religion together. Um, the way that they perceive the world is, you know, truth is always the same. There is one truth, the truth of the Bible and the truth of Plato and Aristotle. Um, if one of them got things wrong, it was probably Plato and Aristotle, and most likely they just didn't see why, you know, things weren't the way that they were, so you can correct them. Um, and indeed, most of the philosophers at this point are trying to correct the problems in Plato and Aristotle and make them more in line with what the Bible teaches or what rationality teaches or what observation teaches. Um, so we will talk about that as we go. Um, but modern philosophy, which is the next period, the next moment in philosophical history, um, which stretches from, let's call it 1500 AD or CE to about 1850 AD or CE, we'll come back to that. Uh, modern philosophy is very much the period that most people think of when they think philosophy. Um, like the two periods where philosophy seemed to be riding the highest or at least the two periods that everybody sort of remembers and associates with philosophy are ancient philosophy, all those Greeks running around in togas thinking about ideal forms on the one hand, and Descartes and Hume and the empiricists and Spinoza and company all running around trying to understand and basically found science um, in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. Um, this was a hugely important movement. Um, at the same time as the scientific revolution is going on, at the same time as you've got like Galileo publishing articles and the church condemning him for it, um, at the same time as you've got like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci creating the greatest works of art the world has ever known, and Shakespeare publishing the greatest plays the world has ever known, like as at the same time as all of these great works and masterpieces of art and literature and science are being created, philosophy too is flourishing. Um, but with this flourishing came a very different attitude and a very different perspective. Um, so a lot of these modern philosophers are disengaging from religion. Um, as much as medieval philosophy was very much an attempt to sort of reconcile religion and secular science, secular philosophy, this is, represents a move where the two are starting to separate again. Um, Descartes, Spinoza, Hume, Berkeley, Hobbes, and Locke, they're all sort of setting the groundwork for science as a separate entity from religion, as, or, and as well as multiple other sciences. Like Locke and Hobbes are starting to do political philosophy and sort of starting to veer off from what religion teaches about, you know, the way that government should be ordered or at least the tradition of the way that government should be ordered, moving away from the Roman model or the monarchic model and instead adopting and questioning these models um, and sort of adopting more democratic, more s supposedly rational as rational models, um, models grounded in rationality rather than in like tradition, religion, etc. Um, 
this ultimately culminates in what is frequently referred to as the Enlightenment. Um, in the 18th century, there is this sort of cult of reason where all of these people are trying to practice pure rationality in one way or another, um, including the French philosophes and their preoccupation with political philosophy and social philosophy, Hume, which we'll talk about in this class, um, and ultimately Immanuel Kant, who basically broke open modern philosophy and radically redefined what philosophy could do. Um, Kant is widely considered the greatest philosopher since Plato and Aristotle, um, and his sort of dominance is almost completely unchallenged. Um, so modern philosophy, too, turned their attention away from metaphysics and ethics uh, insofar as like they were less interested in the way that the world was and became more interested in how we perceive it. Um, they started practicing epistemology, which again, we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and epistemology is very much the study of the mind, of sensation, of how we know things. Um, so recognizing that they couldn't get to the world without going through themselves, these epistemological modern thinkers were starting to reevaluate like how much could we in fact know what limits were placed on our sensation on our ability to interact with the world that prevented us from understanding who god is or from understanding you know the way the world worked from understanding cause and effect even in hume's case um now this cult of reason, this whole enlightenment project of like perfecting the world through rationality, making a perfect government and making a perfect society and making a perfect economic system very much fell apart in the 19th century. Like between the French Revolution, cutting off all those monarchs' heads and defacing great works of art, um, to all of those Marxist-ish revolutions in the 1840s and 50s, it seemed that rationality was not going to solve everybody's problems overnight. Um, and in fact, people were angrier and more violent than ever before, largely because they were being like radically exploited by unchecked capitalism. Like this is back when factory conditions had no oversight and like people were dying, getting their arms caught in machinery and there was like nothing to do but just go home and die. Um, it sucked and people were mad as hell about it. And as a result, they rose up and they were revolting against the governments and the economic systems all the time might be worth remembering that in contemporary capitalism. Um, but anyway, around 1850-ish, you would get a rash of philosophers who were increasingly starting to question the truths of reason as this objective, capital T, truth. And as a consequence, we get postmodernism or contemporary philosophy, which is the philosophy that stretches from, let's say, 1850 CE or AD to the present and likely beyond. Postmodernism very much questions the assumptions of modernism. Rather than assuming that rationality is going to save us and that it is the best thing ever, and that if we just base all of our political systems and science and so on on rationality, then we will come to true conclusions and run our governments well. Postmodernism basically said that there is no capital T truth. There is no capital R rationality. There is nothing objective. All of our experience is subjective. And the best that we can do is sort of compare our subjective experience and see how much of it lines up with itself. Um, 
Postmodernism acknowledged that the ra focus on rationality in modernism was actually kind of used as an excuse to oppress lots of people. Looking at you, black folks, and your enslavement for hundreds of years in the American colonies, um, as well as just an excuse to ignore voices that were opposed to the dominant voices at that time. Women were being ignored, people of color were being ignored. That's not in line with what rationality was supposed to be talking about. Kant said, we all have dignity. How come only some people ended up getting treated as dignified individuals? Um, so postmodernism was an attempt to sort of destroy the existing power structures in place and replace them with more subjective, like lighter, more informed by a diverse experience rather than a monolithic capital T truth. Um, which is part of the reason why all of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. Well, yeah, because like for 150 years, everybody's told you that that makes a whole lot of sense and the truth is relative and that everyone can believe what they want to believe and it doesn't matter. Um, we'll get back to that at some point. Um, so those are the four major periods in philosophy that we're going to be studying, and we will study philosophers from each one of them. So we will study Plato and the Tao Te Ching and the Book of Exodus from the Bible as our ancient philosophers. We will study Anselm and Aquinas as our medieval philosophers. We will study Descartes and Hume as our modern philosophers, and we will read some Nietzsche and some Sartre as our contemporary or postmodern philosophers. Um, just be aware that there are four distinct periods in philosophical history, and while they do bleed into each other a little bit, um, you will notice that there are some pretty radical changes to the way that our thinkers think about things and talk about them um, as we cross those lines. Um, so with that in mind, the five branches of philosophy as they are typically understood um, are also kind of important for understanding the way that each of our philosophers are thinking and what they're thinking about. Um, so the first branch of philosophy that everybody knows about and that is probably the most famous as far as philosophical thought and reflection is concerned is metaphysics. Um, this is what most people think of when they think, what do philosophers do? Well, they sit around and they think about God and they think about reality and they think about being. That's what metaphysics is. Um, in fact, the name is kind of nonsense. Like when Aristotle originally wrote the metaphysics, which is like the first time that that term had been used in philosophical circles. Um, it, it was right after writing his other book, The Physics, and meta in Greek just means after. So literally metaphysics just means like physics part two. Um, so that's quite the, you know, accident on the part of the entire history of philosophy. But it is just as important to stress that physics and metaphysics are intimately related. Um, physics and metaphysics are honestly overlapping a lot like even within you know scientific physics circles like once you get to high level examinations of the way that the universe works you're basically doing metaphysics um like far be it from me to start co-opting you know great thinkers but albert einstein when he conducts the theory of relativity like as much as it is based in mathematics and based in you know hard science the only reason it's not metaphysics is because the, he was called himself a physicist when he made it. Looking at the world in that light should constitute metaphysics as much as it constitutes physics. High-level abstract physics is metaphysics. The difference 
at least in philosophical circles, the reason why we don't claim Einstein as a philosopher and the reason why we do claim, say, Heidegger, um, even though physicists won't touch him with a 10-foot pole, um, has less to do with what we are talking about and more with how we are talking about it. Um, metaphysics is usually the study of, quote, reality or the study of, quote, being. Um, in short, it is the study of what is and how it is, um, what you know, exists in the world and how it exists in the world, how it relates to other things that exist in the world. Anytime that you're studying that stuff, you're studying metaphysics. If you're studying the nature of cause and effect, you're studying metaphysics. If you're studying the existence or non-existence of God, you're studying metaphysics. If you're studying, you know, does free will exist, you're studying metaphysics, though you'll find yourself in ethics territory pretty quickly. Um, what is important? If there is a distinction between metaphysics and physics, it comes down to can it be observed? Um, metaphysics is typically understood as the study of unobservable phenomena, the study of what is but cannot be seen or like interacted with. Um, and that's largely because, again, Aristotle used the second half of his physics treatise, um, his physics part two, to write about the big questions, like the prime mover, or the way that cause and effect works, or the way that the heavens spun around in various spheres. Um, that was way more abstract than his first text, which was more about like movement, how does movement work, which is what physics is about today. Um, so as a consequence, if there's a distinction, that's what it is. Metaphysics is the study of what cannot be seen or like interacted with, while physics is the study of what can be seen, interacted with, or quantified. Um, and as a consequence, but, you know, I should hesitate and uh, step back. Um, as a consequence, people tend to look at metaphysics as though it is like nonsense. And there have been philosophers who have definitely said that. Like, we will read Hume, who at who famously said at one point that, like, all treatises of metaphysics are nonsense and should be committed to the flames. Um, but that's not quite fair. Um, the reason, the way that you ultimately talk about things that you can't observe is through rationality itself. So a lot of our philosophers are going to approach metaphysical truths from the perspective of truth, rationality. Um, this, like, cause and effect has to be the case because while we observe these phenomena, like, we recognize that there is a connection between these two because they happen over and over and over again. Um, we can say that something is good or bad as a metaphysical claim, especially if we assume that there is a god or that there is some, like, transcendent uh, virtue or value um, underlying human life. And we can, you know, posit that by fiat, it, like if we say that there is a social contract, we can posit that through religious truth, if we say that there is a god. Um, there is evidence in metaphysics, it's just not scientific evidence. Um, keep that in mind, because I find that a lot of my students struggle with that a lot. Um, a lot of what we're going to be dealing in this, with in this class is evidence, but it is not evidence in the sense of, like, experimentation or scientific data or anything like that. It is evidence in the sense of lived experience or evidence in the sense of rational logic. Um, evidence will come back to that. Um, the second branch of philosophy that we will spend a lot of time discussing and that is especially famous is epistemology, the study of knowledge, the study of um, the mind. 
Um, epistemology should be differentiated from psychology just in the same way that metaphysics is differentiated from physics. Um, psychology is the study of the brain. It is the observable phenomena um, that you can see people having. Like it is neuroscience and it is like therapy in the sense of like observing people over time. Um, it is like an attempt to quantify human brains and human thinking in scientific ways in where epistemology is sort of understanding human minds by observing one's own mind as well as observing like people behaving and people thinking and the limitations that are connected to that um, psychology and epistemology are two very different disciplines although they do to have conversations from time to time occasionally angry conversations um importantly for our purposes like epistemology represents a big move away from metaphysics um epistemology is very interested in sort of understanding the way that knowledge works insofar as it is justified true belief or whatever definition you have for knowledge it is interested in understanding how we come to truth if truth is even possible it also branches out into the study of language um, which is where you get like linguistics and semiotics branching off from philosophy again but even so philosophy of language is its own distinct entity insofar as it deals with how language affects the way that we think and how the way that we think affects language whether or not specific languages like restrict or enable people to think in specific ways um all of this comes down to basically how does logic work in some ways um how do we get knowledge how do we make knowledge how do we understand things this is all in the realm of epistemology not in the sense of like how do brains work how do we store knowledge or how do we access it or like how do we create you know neural pathways but how do we you know use our minds to understand the world um, what problems do we run into when we do that? What, you know, abilities do we have for processing information? Um, we'll get into that more again when we hit Descartes because that's, he is very interested in epistemology. Um, the third branch of philosophy is ethics and it is the most distinctively ours. Um, ethics is the study of what one should do. It is the study of behavior, of right and wrong, of good and evil. Um, ethics is the one discipline in the entirety of all academic disciplines that can say without qualification what one should or should not do. And I want to stress this. Um, science doesn't have this ability. Like, science will frequently assume this ability to itself, but that's kind of wrong. Anytime that science is doing science, what they are doing is gathering data. They're experimenting, they are, you know, getting information, they are looking at the heavens and tracking the movements of stars and planets. Um, they're jotting it down in their notebooks and they are publishing papers to inform everyone, you know, here are the apparent rules for how the, how gravity works. Here are the apparent rules for how, you know, brain chemistry works. We have observed that, like, 
this phenomenon is happening, that there's a hole in the ozone layer, or that temperatures are rising, or that you know wolves do not actually have an alpha structure, um, that penguins are dying because of pesticide spraying in America. Like these are things that science can say, but what science can't say is the next step. They can say, you know, there's this huge hole in the ozone layer, but they can't say, so we should fix it. That's an ethical question. Science can describe in profound detail, you know, how the hole in the ozone layer is working, how fast it's progressing, what is causing it, what is, you know, the possible effects of this. They can extrapolate, you know, what might happen as a consequence. But at the end of the day, it's up to ethicists to say, what should we do? Um, there's a great essay that I teach in my ethics class that really illustrates this. Um, this fellow named Baxter wrote an article called People or Penguins. Um, and he says, hey, scientists have determined that destroying Antarctica and killing off penguins. And everyone and all these scientists are saying, stop spraying DDT because you're killing the penguins. And Baxter's like, shut up. Um, we have to decide what the worth of a penguin actually is. At the end of the day, we need pesticides in order to be able to produce food. We need to be able to, you know, produce lots and lots of food in order to help people to survive. So what you are basically saying when you're saying, stop spraying pesticides, think of the penguins, is penguins are worth more than human beings. At the end of the day, we have to be able to put a worth on penguins, Baxter tells us. We have to say how many penguins are worth a washing machine or a hospital or to feed people. To make these kinds of decisions, you need to have more than just raw data. You have to be able to assign value. You have to be able to assign worth. And you can't come to those conclusions without knowing what it is that you value, what it is that is worthwhile. Um, and to make those assumptions requires an ethical framework, not a scientific one. You can quote statistics at me all day about, you know, the ozone layer or rising temperatures in the, in the world or, you know, the death of penguins because of pesticides. At the end of the day, we have to decide as a culture what we value enough to change the course of our behavior, if we should change the course of our behavior you know, what we should change the course of our behavior to. That relies on philosophical assumptions, not just scientific ones. You cannot prove that we should, you know, change the way that we behave based purely on statistics and data. You also have to make assumptions about what is worthwhile, what one ought to do. That's what ethicists do. Um, and it is very easy for us to conflate science with ethics. It is very easy for us to jump off the handle and be like, oh, penguins are dying. We have to stop the dying penguins. But at the end of the day, we have to decide what is worthwhile. We have to weigh our priorities against each other. We have to decide where the food goes, where the vaccine goes, where our money goes. Um, and those things require something that science can never teach us. Like science is never going to be able to observe values. Like sure, it can you know take a poll and be like, how many of you think that we should stop killing penguins? And it's like, well, 60% of people say that we should stop killing penguins. Okay, cool. Now, why? Why do penguins matter? Why do people matter? Why should we you know not let thousands of people die to coronavirus rather than you know just 
decreasing the surplus population, as good old Ebenezer Scrooge once prescribed. Um, we should have conclusions to that based on our values, based on what we believe about what is right and wrong, about what is worthwhile and important in the world. Without that, it's just flying by the seat of our pants, and it's a huge problem. Um, in fact, ethics is like my favorite class to teach because I find that a lot of students haven't spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. That as much as you know, their English teachers have been making them read classical literature so they will consider ethics and such, at the end of the day, it doesn't come to much. Um, at the end of the day, not many people spend a lot of time rigorously thinking about the consequences of their actions and what their values actually are. Um, so ethics is very much a philosophy thing. It's probably one of the most important branches in philosophy. It is also not something we're going to be talking about a lot in here. Um, we will run into ethics from time to time. We'll probably end up talking about ethics quite a bit. Um, but Sussex County Community College, like most academic institutions, has a designed class for ethics separate from their intro class. Um, something along the lines of a contemporary moral issues. I forget what they call it here. Um, I believe you can take that with Dr. Scatchy, and I highly recommend it. Um, I cannot recommend taking an ethics class highly enough. You know, because ethics and logic and intro. Sure, why not? Take all the philosophy classes. Um, but seriously, like just being a human being requires ethical decisions all of the time um if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing probably go fix that and figure it out the fourth famous branch of philosophy is politics shocker this is the study of government um, but it is not the study of government the way that your political science classes will frequently approach it, where your political science classes will be devoted towards how do you get votes and how do you, you know, use the media to advance your platform, what is the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats, and so on and so forth. It's specifically geared to our specific political system, in short. Philo or politics from philosophical standpoints, from in philosophical circles, involves government in theory like what is the best kind of government is democracy in fact superior to socialism fascism communism etc and if not why um what is the goal of government hey look it's ethics again creeping into the margins um aristotle once famously said that politics is basically just ethics but for everyone um politics is sort of looking at how the common body of human beings makes decisions um, what it, its decisions are based on and how that should be implemented on a grand scale this is another one we're not going to talk about very much in this class like there are some really great political philo philosophical works that i could recommend like i love me some kant or some Locke, um, but it's not going to happen because again our focus is primarily going to be metaphysics and epistemology in here and then the fifth of our branches of philosophy is the red-headed stepchild that doesn't get any press anymore, alas, aesthetics. The study of beauty or the study of artistic value. Um, aesthetics has very much been co-opted by, like, criticism. So you've got, like, all of your literary critics and your, your like, art critics and theater critics and so on. Um, they are very much the ones who have sort of done all of the 
the aesthetic work, but a number of philosophers still do aesthetics, um, especially as it connects to ethics, strangely enough. That's still ours, and they'll never take it from us, damn it. Um, but aesthetics is basically like approaching art from the grand scale, looking at the theory behind creation, behind artistic creation, looking at what appeals and what is beautiful and what, you know, we as human beings need to say to ourselves, what we express to ourselves. And a fair number of philosophers still do talk about aesthetics, just not nearly as much as it used to be. Um, again, instead, that's very much sort of devolved to the criticism scene. But I also find that a lot of those critics do build um, aesthetic systems, are doing philosophy. Um, one of my famous, one of my favorite literary critics is Wayne Booth, um, who did an ethics of fiction. Um, he was basically building a grand theory of how, you know, the appreciation of literature should work. And that's where it very much is bleeding over into aesthetics. But again, philosophy has kind of neglected that in recent memory. So we're not going to talk about that one either, alas. Um, so those are the five branches. Metaphysics, the study of reality or what is. Epistemology, the study of knowledge or of the mind. Ethics, the study of behavior or of right and wrong. Politics, the study of government or how we should govern ourselves. And aesthetics, the study of art or beauty. Um, so there you go, folks. Those are your categories. The like one thing you should probably memorize in this class, the four periods in philosophy and the five branches of philosophy, which we'll come back to um, as we sort of switch and move around and talk about our various individual philosophers and how they're relevant here. Um, so moving on, if the first tool in your tool belt is how to become more logical and the second tool in your tool belt is the various categories that philosophy falls into, let's talk about the third tool in your tool belt, like the business of doing logic itself. Um, again, I'm assuming that you watched and understood the wireless philosophy videos on critical thinking and on formal and informal fallacies. That is a good primer to exactly how arguments work, but it's not quite as comprehensive um, as I would like. It doesn't get into some of the nitty-gritty details of what we're going to find as we're exploring these philosophical texts. Um, so let's talk first a little generally about how logic actually works. Um, so in general, what we are going to find in text after text after text after text, both in this class and outside of it, um, basically all texts have this in some capacity, like even most of the fictional works, um, unless they're being totally abstract and some like William Gass nonsense or Ben Marcus, that son of a bitch. Um, at any rate, tangent aside, um, the thing that I want to stress here is that all philosophical arguments, all arguments in general, should basically have something that they are trying to prove backed up by evidence for how you are proving that. This is super basic. That's how these things work. Now, this evidence doesn't necessarily have to be scientific. It can also be purely rational. It could be, you know, emotional or personal in some way. It could be based in, you know, individual anecdotal experience, or it could be based in statistics, or it could be based in observation. There are all sorts of evidences that we can employ. And you should keep in mind that no one of them is sort of objectively worse than any other. Like, 
there are fallacious arguments that you can make. There are deprioritizations that you should take into account. Like if somebody gives you a long statistic about how like 99% of Americans are, you know, eating too much like bad food and somebody says it's not a problem because i eat great like you're like shut up like that isn't actually relevant here um please do not argue against you know a dominant trend where i'm trying to argue that people need to eat healthier by saying that i eat healthy enough thank you very much like you are not everyone um but at the same time like in the right situation, these sorts of arguments are just as relevant, just as important, just as useful, just as valid, so to speak. Um, like you'll notice that, you know, in, in the example in, that the wireless philosophy gives you, um, like where you've got, you know, this person who is saying, you know, I, so-and-so is not going to come to the party because I don't like him. That's a bad argument if this person had nothing to do with creating the guest list, but it's a good argument if they did. Like, if they specifically did not invite that person to come to the party, then yeah, it's not likely that he is going to come. Keep in mind that the context is important. Look for the logical connections. Why cause and effect would suggest um, one outcome as opposed to another. Um, but the other thing that I want to stress about the whole business of logic altogether um, is that I expect, again, a sort of point-by-point -point move from your assumptions to your conclusions. Like, that's how philosophy works. You start with a premise, like, people need to eat healthier, and you work toward a conclusion. People, or perhaps we should restrict McDonald's from serving unhealthy food. Now, notice that that conclusion doesn't necessarily follow. Like, you would have to make more premises. In order to prove that McDonald's shouldn't serve unhealthy food, you'll need to prove not just that people are, you know, generally unhealthier than they should be, but also that McDonald's is a major contributing factor, um, that a lot of people are eating there because it is cheap or whatever, um, and that McDonald's is culpable for this. Like, you have to demonstrate that, you know, the, the usual logic of, you know, McDonald's is a corporation and therefore all they have to do is just turn a profit by any means necessary and people are responsible for their own health, McDonald's is not. Like, you have to make that case as well. Um, you have to fill in the gaps. You have to see what other potential arguments people could make. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind. But also note the structure here. You have assumptions, you work your way to conclusions. The assumptions are a given. Like you cannot do logic, you cannot make arguments without assumptions. Like, and there's nothing wrong with assumptions in this sense. We all have them. I assume the sun is going to rise tomorrow and there's nothing wrong with that assumption unless you're like getting really particular, particular about it. I assume that, you know, it is better to not kill people than it is to go around killing people. That is not a bad assumption. It is grounded in a lot of good reasons. Um, but be aware of what those assumptions are. In this class, I strongly encourage you to reevaluate the decisions that you were making and the things that you were writing and the arguments that you were claiming by starting by recognizing what your foundational assumptions are as well as the process by which you go from those assumptions to your conclusion. 
if you are sitting in the voting booth and you are saying, what presidential candidate am I going to vote for? Am I going to vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? You shouldn't just go with your gut. You should be able to say, you know, this candidate represents what I believe has in the past, like, uh, done things that have benefited me as a person, um, will steer this country in a better direction for this policy, this policy, this policy, this policy, this policy, and then hit the box. Um, you should not just, you know, be like, well, because this dude's an asshole or because this dude eats babies or whatever ridiculous nonsense is getting spun out of the internet these days. Um, the fact of the matter is you have assumptions and you should see how those assumptions lead to your conclusions. And many times in philosophy, we are going to be reevaluating those assumptions. If you have a false assumption, a bad assumption, an assumption that is not true, it will lead you to shocker bad conclusions, conclusions that are not true. Um, so that's one of the key things that we're going to do in here. We are going to be working on working on going from assumptions to conclusions, but also working on understanding what assumptions we have and how those assumptions are informed. How did we get them? Um, should we have them or should we get rid of them in some cases? Um, now, the other component that we're going to be running into a lot in philosophy is defining our terms. Um, like as much as you definitely need to understand that basic, basic structure of logical argument, what are my assumptions? What is the process by which I am like logically arguing, arguing from my assumptions? And how do I get to my conclusion as well as, you know, what that conclusion is? Um, but also what are the terms that I'm using along the way? Over and over and over again, philosophers are gonna stop everything and define their terms. And this is an incredibly important part of the philosophical process, because if we do not stop and define our terms, we're just letting assumptions built into those words infiltrate our conversation. Um, so for example, one of the most potent arguments for the existence of God is that God is perfect, and since he is perfect, he must exist because existence is a perfection, therefore God exists. That is the ontological argument. We will confront that when we get to Anselm in medieval philosophy. What he is arguing is the definition of God implies God's existence. And we can argue that one forever if we want to. But what I want to stress here is that the definition is what needs to be clarified. Is that in fact what God means? What do we mean by perfect? Does that in fact include existence? So if we say, you know, it is good to do X, we need to understand what it means to be good. We need to understand what frame of reference goodness actually is. Um, and to do that, we have to stop and define our terms. Plato is especially keen to do this. Like almost all of the great Platonic dialogues, including the Euthyphro, which we'll be starting next week, involves him basically spending an entire dialogue defining a single term. In this case, what is piety? In other texts, what is beauty, or what is goodness, or what is justice? Um, this is foundational to philosophy. If we don't know what we mean with the words that we say, then we cannot actually get anywhere with them. 
And this brings us to one of our logical structures, one of the ways that we do argumentation. Um, you'll notice in the, in the wireless philosophy video, they separate between deductive and inductive reasoning. Deductive is reasoning that is 100% guaranteed, where the conclusion is guaranteed by the premises, whereas uh, inductive or ampliative reasoning is made more probable by the premises. The conclusion isn't 100% likely, but it is more likely as a result of the argument that you've made. Maybe so-and-so won't come to the party because he's really shy, versus this guy literally cannot make it to the party because he is in China and there is no way for him to get here on time. Um, that's the difference between deductive and ampliative reasoning. But there are multiple other sort of subcategories of rationality that we're going to run across that I want you to learn to recognize. And the first has a lot to do with definition. Uh, because the first and most foundational kind of argumentation in the history of philosophy is the same argumentation that springs directly from Euclid and the same argumentation that Plato and Socrates thought was so cool that they incorporated it into nearly all of their arguments. And that is, drumroll please, categorical reasoning. Reasoning using categories. And the single best example that I can present for this is the old categories of Euclidean geometry. Um, when you understand what like a four-sided figure is, you can go on and define more and more precise terms. So a parallelogram is a four-sided figure where all of the sides are parallel to one another. A rectangle is a parallelogram where all of the angles are 90 degrees. A square is a rectangle where all of the sides are equal in length. Notice the way that that definition works. Each definition of the subcategory incorporates the overarching definition of the higher category, but adds a specific difference. This is what Aristotle acknowledged as genus and specific differences. So a square can be defined as a member of the rectangle category with all of the characteristics that the rectangle category has, but also the specific difference of all of the sides are equal. Therefore, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. All rectangles are parallelograms, but not all parallelograms are squares. You can apply this in logical argumentation by having a category with determined characteristics and then applying individual elements to that category. The positively famous example is all humans are mortal, like here is your category, human, and here is the characteristic that all humans have, they are mortal. If you say Socrates is a human, then you must conclude that Socrates is mortal. If he is part of the category with that characteristic, then he must also have that characteristic. So, with that in mind, it is a deductive argument, nine times out of ten, we'll get to the exceptions momentarily, when you use this categorical structure. When you say, like, all pious actions are just, then you are saying that whatever justice is, whatever that justice involves, piety will also have those characteristics. If you say that, you know, it is good to do 
X and we should do all good things, then we should do X. Um, that is using the category of goodness applied to the specific situation. Um, now notice, again, you have to have very clear definitions for this categorical reasoning to work, um, but it assumes that those definitions are already in place. Um, if, like, if all x are y and you have z is uh, x, then z is also y. Um, whatever that overarching definition might be, whatever specific characteristics that definition might have, um, now, you will see categorical logic rephrased from time to time as well. Um, one of the other famous structures that you will run into is the implicative argument, um, or implicational reasoning. And this is basically any argument that has an if hanging out in it. And notice that most arguments can be rephrased as if-then arguments. So, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, can be rephrased as if you are a man, then, or if anything is a man, then anything is mortal. Um, Socrates is a man, therefore he is mortal. Um, that's how if-then statements work. So you'll notice in the video they talked about modus ponens. You know, if x, then y, x, therefore y. However, you can also make lots of mistakes with modus ponens, as the video stresses out, or stresses. Like, affirming the consequent is a formal fallacy, because instead of saying if x then y, x then y, you are saying if x then y, y therefore x, which doesn't hold up. Um, just because Socrates is mortal doesn't mean that he is a man. Um, so if you have the logical statement, if something is more if something is a man then it is mortal socrates is mortal the conclusion isn't necessarily that socrates is a man it could be that socrates is a dog or a horse or a fruit fly like all of those are mortal things that aren't human um likewise flipping the script a little bit if you say socrates is not a man that doesn't necessarily imply that socrates is not mortal if x then y not x does not guarantee not y um again socrates could be a fruit fly and therefore still mortal even though he is not a man um but and this is where things get really hairy thanks to the rule of the contrapositive if you say if x then y not y, you do in fact get not x. If Socrates is not mortal, then there's no way that Socrates can be a man, because again, the category of mortal things is bigger and includes the category of humans. I realize that this is super complicated and really difficult to sort of explain via me, my voice talking to you, but here we are. Um, the last kind of reasoning that I do want to draw your attention to, and that we are going to run across quite a bit, in this class is the analogical argument or analogical reasoning. Um, and just as categorical reasoning has categories and implicational reasoning has implications, the analogical reasoning has analogies, by which I mean a comparison. All analogical arguments will feature a comparison of two things, and the strength of that analogical argument will depend on the strength of the comparison. So for example, 
the one of the most famous arguments for the existence of God is known as the watchmaker argument. And in the watchmaker argument, everyone states that if you were wandering around in the middle of a deserted island, wondering if humans had ever set foot on that island before, and you stumbled across a pocket watch sitting on the ground, you would immediately conclude that humans had been there. The pocket watch is too complicated, too structured, too obviously designed to be explained as growing naturally out of nature. You wouldn't make the same argument about like a rock or a tree or you know an, like a wild boar hanging around on the island. Maybe on that case, that one gets complicated. Um, but you would certainly make the conclusion if you found a pocket watch. The argument then goes on to say, well, the world's complexity is very similar to the watch's complexity. And therefore, the fact that the world is very complicated and all the pieces fit together in this elaborate way, this fascinating, intricate, perfect way, you can conclude that somebody must have designed the world, just as somebody must have designed the pocket watch. If anything, because the pocket watch is so much less complicated than, say, a human being or the eye or, you know, elaborate ecosystems spanning miles and miles of Earth's territory, you must conclude that there is a god, there is a designer, and that that god is infinitely more intelligent than we are. But notice, the strength of the argument depends on the strength of the comparison. Only insofar as we can compare the world to a pocket watch can we say that the designer of the world must be like the designer of the pocket watch. Fact of the matter is, they are not at all alike. Like, pocket watches are infinitely smaller, they're way less complicated, but also the complications involved are way less sort of organic, and therefore it is very difficult to make that comparison. It is very difficult to conclude that, you know, there must be some designer god who is very similar to designer humans um, building their pocket watches and such. Um, that's the key to analogical reasoning. Anytime you see a like or an as in an argument, you are probably dealing with a comparison. Anytime that you were seeing a comparison in your argument, its strength, the strength of the argument itself, will depend on how good that comparison actually is. How much are the things being compared actually similar to one another? If they are not similar, then the argument isn't going to hold up. It will be especially weak. If they are similar, then the argument will hold up, and they may be very strong. Now keep in mind that these three kinds of reasoning, and or categorical, implicational, and analogical, can frequently be either deductive or ampliative. You can make deductive categorical arguments and you can make deductive implicational arguments, but you can never make a deductive analogical argument. The comparison necessarily prevents it from being 100% guaranteed. However, you can combine ampliative arguments like the analogical argument with other structures like the categorical argument to make arguments that will again remain ampliative but that mix and match the various characteristics. So if for example I were to say Socrates looks a lot like a man, 
Like he is not a man, he's maybe an alien from outer space, but he walks upright and he's got two eyes and he reasons the way that humans are. We could conclude that it is probably the case that Socrates is mortal. If Socrates is similar to a man, then Socrates is probably similarly mortal. It probably has that same characteristic. And notice we have just combined a categorical argument with an ampliative analogical argument. Now we have an ampliative argument that is categorical, and that is totally possible. Again, most of the arguments we are going to see in this class are going to have multiple different sort of styles and approaches sort of mashed together and brought into this elaborate series of argumentation. That's perfectly normal. Um, but it will complicate things considerably. So at this point, keep an eye out for those three kinds of arguments, the categorical argument, the implicational argument, and the analogical argument. Note the difference between deductive and ampliative reasoning, and we should be good to go. Now, at this point, we've talked about three important tools for your belt. First tool is how to become better at logic. Second tool, what are the categories that we're going to be talking about in this class? Third tool, what are some of the basic argument structures that you're going to see over and over again, starting from like premises and conclusions, going all the way to various classical argument forms like categorical and ampliative reasoning. The last thing I wanna talk about, the last tool for your belt has to do with the fallacies that you found in both the formal and informal fallacies video, but also the informal fallacies that were talked about on the Texas State page. And the reason why I wanna stress this and why I kinda wanna go over this every year um, is because first of all, it's something that is eminently practical. Like as much as you probably are not going to be thinking about categorical and, and uh, analogical arguments in your day-to-day -day life after you leave this class, although it probably would help to do that from time to time, you will be positively bombarded by informal fallacies from the second you step out of this classroom to the next time that you, you know, come to my class or listen to my lecture or whatever the case may be. Um, advertising and political discourse and every essay you read online will frequently traffic in informal fallacies. They are like utterly ubiquitous. These are tried and true techniques for getting people to do things you want them to do, but they are also relentlessly irrational. Um, and I wanna stress that because I wanna protect you from them. Like not just, you know, in the course of this class, I don't want you to make them, like God forbid you make an ad hominem attack in my, in my class. But at the same time, like I want you to be better protected against people trying to exploit and manipulate you. People who are going to try and convince you with arguments that have no substance to them. Um, so I wanna go over a few of the basic informal fallacies and sort of talk about how they are frequently used and sort of guide you against them so you will have a better sense of how to like recognize them and call them out when they when they transpire. Um, and the first one that I definitely do wanna talk about is the ad hominem attack. It's probably one of the most popular logical techniques. It is all over the freaking internet, like I can't even. Um, it is frequently employed in political discourse, like to the point that it's nauseating. Um, and it is one of the easiest to identify and hardest to sort of prevent or like stop yourself from falling into. Um, 
ad hominem is just a fancy latin term for attack the man um which basically just means instead of making a logical argument that opposes whatever it is that your opponent is trying to say you're just like well you're a dumbhead so i don't care um like that's literally what it comes down to it'll sound fancier normally like instead you'll have something along the lines of my opponent does not know what he's talking about or my opponent probably doesn't have the sufficient knowledge in order to appreciate the nuances of this scenario which is just a fancy way of saying they're a dumb head and they don't know what they're talking about and you shouldn't listen to them ad hominem attacks are always illogical like sure you can definitely sort of chip away at the credibility of a person as a way of you know dealing with their expertise on a subject that's totally valid like if you bring some supposed psychological expert to a trial to like convince you that this person fits the psychological profile of this crime and then you find out that that dude actually doesn't have a degree and is just pulling stuff out of his butt then yeah that's bad you relied on this person for their authority his authority has been undermined therefore you shouldn't trust what that person has to say the only reason you brought him here in the first place was because he was a noted psychologist turns out he's not oops that's a problem and that by that same logic you can definitely say you know this person is unfit to hold this position like lots of you know political discourse is like you shouldn't vote for this person because they are bad at their job like this person has no military experience or this person has no you know understanding of the way the economy works um that's frequently thrown around and those are pretty valid arguments but when it comes down to you know two people arguing over a specific issue or a specific point and somebody goes so far as to say you're a dumb head that's not helpful like if for example you saw a debate between donald trump and joe biden where they're talking about the economy and you know biden is arguing that like here is his big economic plan and trump says you've never had any experience in the financial sector that will never work that's an ad hominem that is not you know addressing these specific issues of biden's plan that is instead addressing biden's fitness to make a plan the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter biden probably had this plan worked up by a bunch of economic experts who he has on his staff in which case those are probably totally qualified people and if biden knows that he needs to include them in his staff then you're good to go um but attacking biden specifically just distracts from the actual argument that's being made it's not addressing the points that he's making it's addressing the character and keep in mind like everybody does this um like i remember back in the 2016 election you know there, there were a series of ads that the clinton campaign were circulating where it was like do you want this man to be a role model for your children referring to donald trump and that was like as blatant an ad hominem attack as i have ever freaking seen um granted it was at least partially relevant like this is you know he she's basically saying you know this person as president will be a role model is that something that you actually want but the implication was certainly along the lines of like you know he is a bad person and without ever making the argument that that was the case that's ad hominem but what's scarier than the ad hominem is sort of what an ad hominem will develop when left to fester and that is poisoning the well 
Poisoning the well is distinct from an ad hominem attack because poisoning the well is about making sure that your ideological opponent is not trusted at all in the future by other people. And again, this is something that both sides of the democratic spectrum are using all of the time. I imagine that off the top of your head, if I asked you like what kind of bad names Republicans could get called, you could come up with a bunch of them. You could talk about how, you know, they're all bigots or they're all white supremacists or they're all homophobes or they're all, you know, crazy Christian fundamentalists. Um, you could talk about how like they all shout all the time without actually making any reasonable arguments. They're all gun nuts and they all love violence and they're all, you know, various, various things. Likewise, if I said, what are some of the bad names that we associate with Democrats, you could probably come up with Snowflake or Tree Hugger or SJW or any number of crazy things. They're all a bunch of liberal hippies. They're bleeding hearts and all this silliness, over-academic, over-educated idiots like who have no understanding of the practical value of things. None of them have ever worked a day in their life. Like You can go on for days. What I wanna stress is that both of these images like the idiot, bigoted, gun-toting Republican and the liberal, snowflake, overeducated, underproductive, both of these are images that the other side wants you to see that side as. The Republicans want you to see Democrats as ineffectual and weak, and the Democrats want you to see Republicans as a bunch of angry blowhards. Because if you think of them as angry blowhards, you won't take what they have to say seriously. And if you think of Democrats as a bunch of bleeding heart liberals, you won't take what they have to say seriously. In some ways, Republicans and Democrats will even poison the meaning of individual words. They will make liberal out to be an insult. They will make, you know, conservative out to be an insult in order to make you never take what they have to say seriously. So it doesn't matter at that point if Trump or Biden or whoever makes a decent argument, at the end of the day, you just disregard them because you have been primed to think that these people are bankrupt, that they have nothing to bring to the table. When QAnon conspiracies tell us that, you know, Democrats are pedophiles and, you know, that like they're all in favor of post-term abortion, which is just absurd, um, they are basically saying, don't ever trust what any Democrat says. They are always lying to you. They are always manipulating you. They're always deceiving you. When Trump goes out of his way to say that like the mainstream media is always publishing things against him because they're controlled by liberal think tanks and stuff, he is saying, you know, never trust the New York Times, never trust NBC, never trust CNN, and instead only trust these other vehicles. And likewise, Democrats will go the other way and say that OAN and Breitbart and Fox News are just a bunch of, you know, conservative mouthpieces spouting off nonsense, lying to the public. The idea being that you will not go and see what they have to say. And if you do, you will always go in with serious doubt. This makes it impossible to have a conversation, though. Like, there's no good reason to completely distrust every person who is a Republican or every person who is a Democrat. The fact of the matter is, people say true things no matter what their political ideology may be. Um, they may be inclined to certain falsehoods more often than others, but it doesn't change the fact that truth is not political. Um, 
nor is it an identity issue. A person who speaks the truth will speak the truth regardless of what it is that they believe, perhaps even accidentally. Like with all the tr tweets that Trump has sent out over the years of his presidency, no matter how much you dislike him as a politician, I'm sure there are some nuggets of truth in there. Um, I'm sure he has said things that are in fact the case. Things that maybe you would disregard if you considered every word out of his mouth to be nonsense. Instead, I would encourage you to weigh the merits of an argument on the merits of the argument. The whole point to looking at these informal fallacies is to emphasize the merits of an argument have nothing to do with the merits of the person presenting the argument. An ad hominem attack and a poisoning the well attack are both nonsense because they don't address what is being said, they're addressing the person who is saying it. A white dude can make a valid argument about abortion. A black woman can make a valid argument about racism. Like, everyone can make a valid argument about racism. Everyone can make a valid argument about abortion. Who they are should not influence how you take what they have to say. Instead, you should look at what they have to say and you should evaluate it on its own merits. Now, that isn't to say that authority isn't worthwhile at all. Like if somebody says, in my experience as a black woman, I have been repeatedly persecuted and repeatedly like prevented from you know enjoying normal privilege of being a human being, then yeah, you should look at that and you should say maybe that is the case. But you should be judging her not on the basis of like who she is or what her demographic is so much as why she would have that authority, why her experience would be able to speak to the issue being discussed. Um, in the same way that you wouldn't go to a plumber for economic advice and you wouldn't go to a noted economist to fix your toilet. Um, that's something that they should know, something that would in fact come from their experience, from their authority, as opposed to attacking someone on the basis of something irrelevant because they do not have authority or because they do not have experience. Um, attack the argument, not the person. That's what I want to stress and drive home. Um, now, with that in mind, I want to sort of hop on because while we were talking about poisoning the well, I mentioned sort of poisoning the meaning of individual words. And that means I want to talk about equivocation. Um, equivocation is one of the fallacies that we ran into in the videos. Uh, that whole argument about like, what is light is not dark, a feather is light, therefore a feather is not dark, is an equivocation of the meaning of the word light. Um, it is the difference between light as a measurement of weight and a light as a measurement of color. Um, equivocation is another one of those fallacies that you're going to see all the time. People are going to use words to mean multiple things. The best example I can come up with is the example of the term fake news. Um, fake news has been thrown out a lot over the last several years. Um, and back in 2016, when people were first talking about fake news, what they were referring to, um, specifically it was Democrats talking about um, all of those Russian bots that had like sprung up in the night in 2016 to sort of endorse Trump and circulate propaganda and misinformation. When they said fake news, they meant news that did not have any basis in reality. News that was being circulated online despite the fact that it had no credentials. Um, it was not true. By contrast, within like a month, Trump was talking about fake news with reference to the New York Times and CNN and so on and so forth. He was talking about bias. 
fake news, meaning like CNN is repeatedly publishing articles that, you know, denounce Trump, that say that he is a bad president, so on and so forth. Therefore, it is fake news. Now, media bias is in fact a problem. Like, it is a thing. You should always be attentive to media bias. You know, Fox News is always biased right, and New York Times tends to bias left, and then MSNBC tends to bias very left, and CNN also tends to bias fairly left. But they report the truth. Like, if CNN reports something that isn't the case, they have to print a retraction. Like, people get mad at them. Um, not just people on the right who are mad at them anyway, but people on, who, on the left who, you know, take what they have to say seriously and therefore are very offended when they do not report the truth. It is not the same thing. Bias is apparent all the time. Like, that's a necessary of using language. Like, your biases will creep into what you have to say no matter who you are. Um, but that isn't to say, again, that it's not true, that would be ad hominem, but it is also not fake news in the same way that the Democrats were using the term. What's especially important in this case, though, is by equivocating, by making two different meanings of the term fake news, you end up totally obscuring the problem that was there in the first place. See, equivocation is a problem because you can use a word in the wrong way and make a powerful argument. Like when Trump says, you know, the New York Times is reporting fake news as though fake news means, you know, they're not re reporting the truth. They're reporting things that are untrue, even though they're well documented and verified. And really it's bias that he has the problem with. But it also means that now the word is disappearing the meaning of the word is confused. So take, for example, in the past year, all of those protests um, that were taking place in major American cities, a lot of people were talking about defunding the police. That was the big rallying cry, defund the police. Um, and it took like maybe a week before that word was equivocated nine ways from Sunday. When some people were saying defund the police, what they say were, let's cut the police, you know, cut the police's funding and use that money to funnel it elsewhere to other social programs. Let's have, you know, like psychological therapists on a hotline to help people out. Let's have, you know, in the group of first responders, let's have social workers ready to go um, to be able to take care of domestic disputes instead of like a policeman with a gun. Um, other people meant exactly that, defund the police, like no money, remove the police entirely, like abolish them altogether. And some towns in fact did go forward with that. Um, other people entirely by saying defund the police meant something else like restricting their funding or removing their funding in moderated ways in a con like a big conversation that is you know ongoing how exactly are we going to redistribute money and give them either to police or other social organizations or things like that and by confusing this term republicans and you know people sort of arguing against this would immediately jump to the conclusion that people were talking about the most violent, the most dramatic form of defunding the police. Their conclusion was, oh, so you wanna get rid of law and order, you want anarchy, you want people breaking into people's houses and destroying their stuff and there not being anyone there to prevent them. Um, Democrats and anyone who wants to defund the police are against law and order, these people want chaos. And this is a combination of equivocation 
insofar as it's using the term in a way that not everybody who is using the term means it, but it is also a straw man. A straw man argument is any time that you present the worst version of your opponent's argument rather than approaching the best version of it. So in this case, they were talking to like all the wild far left Democrats who were approaching like anarchism or libertarianism and saying, you want a world where there is no accountability, where there is no oversight, when in fact, nobody was arguing for that. They wanted to take that money and put it somewhere else. They wanted to radically redefine the police at best um, and perhaps just change the way that it works a little bit at worst. And instead, it was being mischaracterized. Instead, we were talking about it as, you know, let's get rid of law altogether. Um, that's a straw man argument. That is a mischaracterization, a caricature of the original position. Um, and you can see the same things in that the left does to the right. Like overwhelmingly, when Trump would post something that would be even borderline racist, you would see people jumping on him as Trump is a racist. Like you could interpret some of his stuff in other ways. You could come to the conclusion that he was, you know, not aware of what was going on or that he was, you know, unsympathetic to what was happening. But overwhelmingly, people leapt to the conclusion that Trump and anyone who supports him is a bigot, a white supremacist, a racist. And while indeed white supremacists did support Trump, like KKK frequently came out in, in favor of him, that isn't to say that every Republican is a racist. Um, that is a straw man position. Um, so anytime that you present the worst version of another person's argument instead of the best version, you are committing a fallacy. You are not actually dealing with the issue at hand, and instead you are presenting it as though it is simpler than it actually is. As a rule in this class, anytime we talk about some highfalutin philosophical issue, or for that matter, any highfalutin controversial political issue, I hope and encourage you to look at the best version of both sides. What are the best arguments that each person, each participant can muster? Um, so, you know, like if we are going to talk about abortion, I don't want this to boil down into one side shouting about a genocide of babies, whereas the other side is talking about it's no more invasive than getting a haircut. What I want is to talk about the serious potential moral and ethical issues surrounding what could be a person being removed from any possibility of having life versus the actual serious implications of a woman not being able to control what happens to her body. Like that's the best side of both of that of both of those conversations. At the end of the day, this is a complicated issue. It doesn't boil down simply. And at the very least, even if you are because of religious convictions or otherwise positive that abortion is murder, we need to at least have a conversation about all of the people who disagree with you and why they disagree with you and what it is that they disagree about specifically. Give everyone the benefit of the doubt, is what I'm saying, until you can't anymore. Because there are plenty of people who are giving you bullshit arguments and who are not talking about you know, what they actually believe. There are a ton of people who are opportunistically taking advantage of untruths rather than trying desperately to reach the truth. And if you find yourself talking to them, feel free to disengage. But generally speaking, until you can't afford to anymore, give people the benefit of the doubt. Until they have exposed themselves for being liars, hypocrites, or immoral, 
assume that they are truthful, consistent, and moral, um, if that makes sense. Now, I can't go into all of the informal fallacies. I'm already letting this lecture run on quite a bit longer than I was hoping. Um, the last one I want to confront, because this one has gotten really, really out of control in recent memory, um, is the slippery slope. Um, the slippery slope is an argument that basically starts from one position and then argues its way to something pretty far away from that original position. Um, the best example that I can come up with is actually a big political argument from back when I was a kid. Um, back in the 90s when everyone was talking about, you know, should gay marriage be allowed, should we legalize it or not, the usual way that that argument would be presented on the right was... Well, if you give gays the right to marry, then you are ultimately undermining the foundation of the institution of marriage. And if you are undermining the foundation of the institution of marriage, then you are going to destroy the American family. And if you destroy the American family, then you are going to be teaching children, like letting children who have no moral education into the world. And if you are not giving your children moral education, then they are going to become, you know, thieves and gang members and violent and law-breaking citizens. And if these children are becoming criminals, then we are talking about anarchy and the American operation is destroyed. Notice the progression here. If we let gay people marry, America is destroyed. Like, that's a reach. And the reason why it's a reach is because while you can see maybe a vague connection between any two of the things that I listed, yeah, if you, you know, change the way that marriage is perceived so it can apply to uh, people of the same sex, then yeah, that does redefine what marriage is. But does that also necessarily entail, you know, moral like degradation of children and you know education and so on and so forth each one of those steps is tenuous at best it's a weak analogical argument at best and you're piling them on top of each other until you end up with this very loose connection between the beginning and the end so next week let's read some plato and jump into these philosophers and talk about exactly how this philosophy works Again, this is a really, really short reading. Like, it's only four pages for next week, so I strongly encourage you to read it several times. Three, ideally, maybe more if you want. Um, know it cold, because we're going to talk about it in painstaking detail next week. Next week is also the first quiz. Do not forget to take the quiz. I believe that it is set up that you can take it twice this time around. If not, then maybe this is an antiquated lecture and I've changed that since. Oh well. Um, at any rate, if it does turn out to be a bad grade, again, don't panic because you will get two drops at the end of the semester as well as all those extra credit opportunities to make it better. Quiz grades are never the end of the world in this class. Um, so do the reading, listen to the lecture, take the quiz, and we can talk on Wednesday in our regularly scheduled conference if we have one, again, depending on which class is listening to this. Um, till then, farewell, and I look forward to talking to you soon.